Radio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. And I'm Victoria. And in this episode, we are reading uh, Hilaire Belloc's Cautionary Tales for Children. I believe that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. Yes, and Um, it's got a very specific subtitle, which I should share with you all. It's called Designed for the Admonition of Children Between the Ages of 8 and 14 Years. Nothing outside of that. Nothing outside of that. (laughs) Okay. You've got a seven-year-old. Too bad. This isn't the book for him. No, you have to wait. (laughs) Wait a year. Um, Now... Something that needs to needs to be noted. Uh, it was it was written in 1907, um, and it's it's hilarious. It's yes, not, it's not intended as like a serious. It's book. also a picture book. It's a picture book. So we should say it's by Hilaire Belloc and a fellow named BTB. Basil Temple Blackwood. I knew you'd know that. Okay, fantastic um, name. Just oh, saying, yes. <laughs> great name. And so it's a book. Uh, it's a series of moral tales. Um, which are absurd. They're all... Is very, so exaggerated to the point of funny. ridiculous. They're very, very funny. So they u- usually... I say this usually because it sometimes then turns it on itself. Usually involves um, some kind of very minor moral uh, that the story is attempting to tell in, as Kara said, very exaggerated terms. So I think one of the examples of this... the, the I think it's all of our favourites. Um, Hildebrand was the one that we all liked. Is that correct? Uh, that was that was probably... I, I, do, I do like the Algernon one. Which one's Algernon? Algernon who played with a loaded gun and obviously no, his we'll, sister we'll, was we'll reprimanded bring, by we'll his father. We'll bring that up later because it's not a good example of the... No, it's, it's not. It's funny because it's not a good example. Yes, it's funny uh, in the context of the rest of these stories. So, no, I don't I, know, Victoria, Kiara, who wanted to read Hildebrand? Quite I'll read it. Yeah. Um, there's oh, a little just... bit that I was, look, I was practicing on the train and there's a little bit that I slip up on every time. I'm not sure where the fluency is meant to come from, but I'll give it my best shot. Okay, so Hildebrand, uh, who was frightened by a passing motor and was brought to reason. Reason with a capital R. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay. Oh, murder. What was that, papa? My child, it was a motor car. A most ingenious toy designed to captivate and charm, much rather than to rouse alarm in any English boy. What would your great-grandfather, who was aide-de-camp to, to General Brew, and lost a leg at Waterloo, and cut for bras and Linny too, and died at Trafalgar? What would he have marked, <laughs> sorry, marked to hear, his young descendant shriek with fear, because he happened to be near a harmless motor car? But do not fret about it. Come, we'll off to town and purchase some. So, that... That probably doesn't sound that funny from just the words. I'm, the I'm just going to point. I, I'm just going to point are out. So funny. Sorry. I, sorry. I'm just also going to point out that the Battle of Trafalgar took place before the Battle of Waterloo. So <laughs> this is that's why that example is so utterly ridiculous. <laughs> just it's, it's really funny because the the picture the pictures are what make this, this story, story really funny. The illustrations. Until got to the end. Um, the illustrations make this. The, the way that it's structured, I don't, is it the same in yours? I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's got like, it says where he says, and lost a leg at Waterloo and Quatrebra, I'm guessing it's Quatrebra, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, and Ligny too, and died at Trafalgar. So after each of the first three names, you have him having a cannonball shooting off his leg, the same leg each time. Um, and then died at Trafalgar. He dies with an arrow in him. So yeah. he fires the cannonball and dies from an arrow, which is perfectly feasible, but ridiculous. And he's got a 
wooden peg leg as well as he's <laughs> falling down and dying. Um, it's so it's so funny. It's and, and many of the uh, so the title, you know, there's Algernon the who played to the loaded gun on missing his sisters, reprimanded by his father. There's all sorts of other like the you no, know, no, hang on, there's, Jim, a, there's Jim, a really good one. Okay, this is the best one. Matilda, who told lies and was burned to death. <laughs> that one's, that one's, that one's really also good. my other favourite one. Actually, that yeah, was that hysterical. Because um, it's, it's the old the boy who cried, cried wolf mm, story. But yep. taken to epically ridiculous better. proportions. So much better, so, so much, much better. better. I would and not be telling my possible children the boy who cried wolf. I would be telling them the story of Matilda. Yes, and um, quite and um, quite literally, the the light, the subtitle, if you like, summarises the exact story. That's basically mm. what happens. And Matilda was a naughty little girl who told lies and then her house caught on fire and no one would believe her and she burned to death. Um, the end. There's, there's different... And it's not just, it's not just I guess, the absurdity of the stories themselves that make this really funny. It's the way that he uses... Um, he breaks the, breaks the fourth wall at least on one occasion. Well, I guess he's always breaking them because it's meant to be stories to children, but he heavily breaks the fourth wall. Um in the example of Lord Lundy, which is a really long poem. And in fact, it's broken into two parts. In, two he cantos. Break, he, bre- he breaks it into two cantos, just because as the final two lines I'm say, getting tired now, and so are you. Let's cut the poem in two. And it says, <laughs> Lord Lundy, and in giant capital letters, second canto. Um, <laughs> and he, there's a great shout-out to, to all of us um, who may be listening to this from a local area according to Cradio, um, is that Lord Lundy, because, you know, he was meant to be the Prime Minister and just messed it up so much. And he's a crybaby. He's a crybaby. He is punished by going to govern New South Wales. <laughs> no! <laughs> what torture! Not New South Wales! <laughs> anyway. And there's another great story. It's Rebecca, comma, who slammed doors for fun and perished miserably. <laughs> There's different. There's different. There's, well, that escalated quickly. Different things going on here, like the boy who ran away from his nurse and got eaten by a lion. Yes, there is that. It uses different, I guess, methods of comedy, but George, who played with the dangerous toy and suffered a catastrophe of considerable dimensions, <laughs> considerable dimensions. There's, and then in the middle of all of this, there's there's one story, which is what uh, Kiara mentioned before. Which is um, Algernon, or Algernon, 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 who played with a loaded gun and on missing his sister was reprimanded by his father. And that's pretty much it. He loads a gun, he goes to shoot his sister. And and misses, misses, thankfully. And his father, uh, to quote it, his father who was standing near, the loud explosion chanced to hear and reprimanded Algernon for playing with a loaded gun. That's it. The little boy who runs away from his nurse at the zoo gets eaten by a lion, but Algernon, who tries to shoot his sister, <laughs> gets a stern word from his father. Oh, yeah. It's very... No, no, it's not even try to. It's very, um... Oh, where is it? You know, careful, children. If you run away from your nurse, a lion to... might eat you, but if you sh- try and shoot your sister with a loaded gun, oh, well, you'll only get it talking to. He pointed it towards his sister, aimed very carefully, but missed her. <laughs> Aimed very carefully. So he was trying to shoot her, the little brat. Like, he wasn't. Yeah, it's not. It's not pretty. Um, yeah, he tried to murder his sister, and all he got was a stern talking to someone. You know, I didn't. Someone, pick, someone to be got honest, scared of a motor car that he'd never seen before, and he... I didn't pick up on the discrepancy between that, between the very small 
uh, venial sin, so to speak, and what happens, the ridiculousness. And I didn't, because I was trying so, I was, I was trying to get through all the poems, so I just yeah. thought that was a bit of a dud. Maybe he was having an off day, but <laughs> no, I just realised that there's an actual uh, significance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's really... <laughs> I wish he'd written maybe a few more like that. Uh, the the, the one reverse. Where, the one where the boy plays in the dirt's a little bit like that. Yeah. It's a little bit yeah, yeah, But it's not... That That one's really extreme. Yeah, basically, uh, someone catches a little boy playing in mud, he gets the snot beaten out of him with the cane, and then says, don't play in dirt. The strange thing about that but one... But you can play in sand. But the thing about that one, this is Franklin Hyde, is that, unless I'm mistaken, it's the only one that has the little poem... And then has the subtitle there's, moral. There's one further yes. on that has a um, moral. Ah, yes, um, it is. It is. It is. It is George. It is George who played with the dangerous toy and suffered a catastrophe of considerable dimensions. So I think it's very interesting that for some of them they like, for instance, the one for Franklin Hyde is from Franklin Hyde's adventure, learn to pass your leisure time in cleanly merriment and turn from mud and ooze and slime, and every form of nastiness. But on the other hand, children in ordinary dress may always play with sand. I think um, it's because. I guess with with this, it's it's essentially a, at least in part a satire. Yeah, it's meant to be a satire very much of the the of genre, the genre. Of, ch- of, of, of the genre of, ch- of mo- children's moral tales. and and so I would say society in general. Yeah, and actually, it's yeah, really funny. British politeness. British politeness. Yeah. and it's actually really funny. Though it's it's incredibly funny that a lion features in the first story because one of the most famous um, fables from Aesop. Who mm-hmm. wrote those classic Latin that all children would have studied in Latin class? Oh, okay. One of the most famous stories is the Lion and the Mouse, and I think it, uh, you know eventually, basically, I think basically a mouse frees this lion from a trap, and then the lion eats the mouse because the mouse was silly enough to think the lion was its friend. So you know, it's, oh, okay. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 there's also you know Aesop's got all sorts of like very very clever moral tales that were like the bedrock of Latin literature, introducing mm. Latin literature to children. And so he's very playfully referencing okay. that, well, that's interesting. that classic, um, that literary classic there. Right. And, oh yes, I, I, so I should, I should mention George and his dangerous toy. By the way, his dangerous toy was a balloon filled with hydrogen. Which that, blew up. Which blew up <laughs> and brought the house down and killed lots of people. And that's a catastrophe of considerable oh, dimension. Terrible. Um, the moral is that little, and, and this one has a moral at the end. The moral is that little boys should not be given dangerous toys. I'm like, well, my family haven't done very well with that. My, <laughs> you know, my youngest brother's toy box was named the Armory because all it contained was armor, swords, sticks, and other. <laughs> but if there wasn't a balloon, it's all safe. Filled with hydrogen. Okay. They hadn't worry. discovered, he- they hadn't worked out helium at this point. <laughs> So, something that I wanted to... We're going to try and do this rather quickly this episode, but one of the things that I wanted to... To spare you, mostly. And to to get us to to an event very quickly, Um, which will be on Cradio, so keep a lookout. Um, And I was looking at... It's rather well-timed, but one of my favourite contemporary philosophers uh, is a fellow named uh, Professor Edward Faser, who's um, a a Thomist philosopher, an Aristotelian Thomist philosopher. That's why he's Luke's favourite. Absolutely. (laughs) Actually, I think think it's almost the other way around. Okay. I think that's why I like St. Thomas, is because this guy introduced him to me. Um, And he talked about in on his blog um, about comedy, uh, I think it was about last week, and why things are funny. Uh, he was responding to, um, to a complaint uh, in the National Review, which is a conservative, I believe, um, publication I think in so, the United yeah. States. 
um, about this complaint that progressives um, have kind of ruined comedy, stand-up comedy in the, in the United States and in the Western world because um, of a certain political correctness, that comedy, by their theory, is meant to be speaking truth to power uh, and that this politically incorrect comedy um, is subverting that. Uh, and Edward Fazer disagrees with this, but that's not really relevant here. What is relevant is what he talks about as being why things are actually funny. Uh, so the theory that has been... So why the slap, why the slap fight, everything from the slap fight and the Three Stooges is hilarious to Monty Python's final battle scene in the Holy Grail, for example, and you or see even, them all getting or arrested. Or even like your like, really high, high comedy and yeah. things like that. Why do we find things funny? Because it is a little bit absurd. This kind of thing is a little bit strange in that no animal in the animal kingdom, as far as I'm aware, has a sense of humour. No. Uh, monkeys do some funny things, but I'm not sure if but they we find, find them, them funny. funny. Um, they have a playfulness, but whether they actually have a sense of humour is a different thing. Um, but all that aside, uh, what he puts forth is the, the most popular view, as, as he says, um, of comedy, which is called the uh, incongruity theory, I believe. Um, yes, incongruity theory. Uh, and to quote him, according to which we find something funny when it involves some kind of anomalous juxtaposition or co- combination of incompatible elements. The examples that he gives are Kramer from Seinfeld, um, Larry David from uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, um, why certain jokes, like punchline jokes, tend to be funny when the punchline is something completely unexpected. Um, he gives all these these as examples um, and why philosophers or philosophers of humour, if you could believe there's such thing, um, see this as being the most likely theory because most things that people find funny fall into this incongruity theory quite well. Um, and this, this is book a- definitely is a, is a exhibit A of, of it because it has it in so many different ways, but every single thing in there is funny because it's absurd. Um, and it's, it's incongruous. It's completely in incongruous. Even the stories, like even the construction of the stories, one after the other. Sometimes the stories are incongruous from the pattern of the stories already set. So you get used to the idea from you know the first couple of stories. Oh, this is a ridiculous. You know, these are ridiculous morality tales. And then you have one which is not ridiculous at all, and that's still funny. Next minute, cold blooded murder. Yeah, <laughs> attempted cold blooded murder and a stern talking to as a result. Like, yeah, and so it's I guess as. Victoria, you said, you know, oh, I didn't notice that before about the, um, about there being Just the... a bit dense. It's all good. <laughs> about about that, that, that poem, uh, yes, that tale being completely different to the others. But why I found that funny is because it was so completely different. The other ones, part of it was because of the story in itself was, was funny. Other ones are because you can tell they're a bit of a satire of the... You don't expect it from a regular children's book. This is a children's book that is, quote, intended for 8 to 14-year-olds. <laughs> it's not intended for 8 to 14-year-olds. It's intended for 25-year-olds like me. Who, <laughs> who have nothing better to do with themselves than to read hilarious children's books. Exactly. Um, but I'm sure the kids would probably find them funny too. But it's interesting because if you were to introduce this book to... A 4-year-old, they to- wouldn't get it. Yeah, or, or you could say, like, if, you know, if in 2,000 years' time someone was to dig up this book, it's perfectly feasible that they could say that, oh, you know, people back then, their moral compass was was very strange compared to that. <laughs> or maybe, maybe in 2,000 years that is their moral compass. I don't know. 
um, and not get the joke. And it's interesting because I think sometimes, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but say like in medieval culture, if people don't understand what's going on in medieval culture and the references there, oftentimes they might not be able to get the joke. And I guess that's probably why that's history why can pe- potentially be really frustrating because well, you I don't mean, know it if happens they're having a laugh every... or if they're being serious because you're not part of that culture. Mm. You don't know what's incongruous yes. to a specific culture. Yes, that's a very good point. It's often quite often like he- helping people, like helping school kids understand Shakespeare. The critical that, yeah. part is getting them to understand the culture of Elizabethan London, because once they once they get into that headspace, they suddenly see why this is funny. Because mm. he was like Shakespeare was not exactly high culture or anything like that. He was you know, <laughs> no. Well, once he was, he was brilliant, but he was also he also made very good use of uh, baldy baldy tales and lewdness and mm. you well, know. Once you the like the highlight of any teacher's career is probably getting your nines to understand the opening of Romeo and Juliet. So do you bite your thumbs? So no, but I do. And blah, 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 blah. You know, that's funny once you get it. Yeah. So when you're reading it for the first time, it's absolute oh, gibberish. You know what they're doing. I explained it to my siblings. I explained it to my siblings because I wanted to give them a rude gesture and my mother was around and I didn't want to give a more obvious <clears> one. So I bit my thumb at them like, what does that mean? I'm like, come here. <laughs> and explain it to them so now that's our thing and you know we just go oh, no. and, then, and then they start going did you bite your thumb at me sir and we start yeah no sir but shakespeare I bite has everyday uses there you go that's why you should read your shakespeare maybe that should be in, a, in an update to this why you should read, read shakespeare and have an tale about how a child I don't know. <clears throat> a child got eaten by a lion because alive. Because Shakespeare. Mm. Um, but we digress. We digress. We do. We do. Di- well, we, we, should... don't, we don't really. Okay. We, we don't we, digress we... too much. I mean, this is all part we of We should, I think, mention the final tale, which is yeah. entitled Charles Augustus Fortescue, who always did what was right and so accumulated an immense fortune. Ah, oh, there we go. I didn't and this, it. I think, is... <clears throat> it ends with It ends with basically him marrying well, people thinking very well of him. And, and building a um, splendid mansion. He thus became immensely rich and built the splendid mans- mansion, which is, is called the oh, Cedar, the Cedars Mus- Muswell Hill. Sorry, that's obscured from my text because it's, it's part picture. of the picture. Yes. Anyway, where he resides in affluence, still to show what everybody might become by simply doing right. Simply doing right is in all caps. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. That's clearly the point of emphasis. Simply there. doing right. It's. I. I've, I'm so pleasantly. I'm not. I'm not surprised. Um, because I've heard very good things about Hilaire Belloc, but I'm so happy that this is so good. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I, I really, really recommend that people read it because it is, it's really, really funny and it's inoffensively and- funny and it's. Like, and okay, maybe some people read... might be offended. I don't know. But well, like, I, just, I is, just can't rule there it is, out. There but... is mention of... Um... Actually, no, yes, yeah, yes. Was... No, I take that back. One bit of uh, racism that would have not been... No, no. Not okay. been an issue in... Yeah, um, okay. Not been an issue in 1907, but would definitely be an issue Especially now. Especially in 1907, what... I don't think it would have been an issue. Yeah, it's in Lord, um, Lord Lundy. Lord Lundy. Where we're going to say it? Yes, yes. We're going to yes, be gonna taken re- off the air. We're yeah, going to be, be reported oh, yeah, come to the on. Human Rights Commission, Kiara. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Keep in mind, context. It's 1907. To quote. Uh, to quote. In quote. This does not necessarily reflect the opinions of... Can you stop <laughs> killing the humour with political correctness, Luke? This is funny. It's incongruent. It's incongruent. Um, Give you incongruent in a minute. Um, here we go. 
Lord Lundy. Lord Lundy from his earliest years was far too freely moved to tears. For instance, if his mother said, Lundy, it's time to go to bed, he bellowed like a little Turk. Now, the interesting thing about this line is that I don't believe it would have been that funny back then. But it's f- it's funny to us only in a really nervous sort of laughter kind of way. Like, so it's, oh, did he just say so that? So it's adopted this, this second dimension of humour just through the passing of decades, which I think is quite funny in and itself. It, it or interesting, plays, should I say. It plays into the incongruity yeah. as well. It's funny. And that's because why it's, like, in, it's totally incongruous to us. That's why mm. I often, I'll, like, you know, when I see really horrible things happening in, like, not horrible, horrible things happening, but horrible things happening in the world in that, like, governments making really bad decisions or people... Um, People making really bad arguments for things and that kind of thing. A thought that goes through my head is, if it, this would be funny if it wasn't so horrible. And yes, it's yes. This would be like, funny if this wasn't real life. Yeah, this would be <laughs> this would be really like yeah, exactly. It wouldn't be it would be funny if it wasn't so bad. And I guess it's that what Edward Fazer talks about is that he specifically mentions I'm not saying I'm not making a comment with incongruity theory about the moral nature of humour and whether certain jokes, he uses the example of blasphemy and sacrilege, um, are actually good. I'm simply trying to explain... Why people find why them funny. people find them funny. And that something can be funny and yet should not be said. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's interesting as well, how you say that over time, mm. yeah, that things <clears throat> can develop a sense of humour almost unintentionally. Well, that's certainly know. unintentional. I think, well, I mean, I didn't think. Hil- well, maybe Hilaire Belloc was one of those people who could have foreseen the mess we got, the mess we get ourselves into. We haven't read anything else of his apart from this, but you know, he probably would never have. He probably never. You you wonder what if he would write this same kind of story if he was around now, as opposed to 1907. I would say, and I'm pretty sure we've like. talked about this beforehand, and it was probably when we were doing. A modest proposal by Jonathan Swift because yeah. there's we have I have to mention where this comes in terms of the literary canon. Mm. So Hilo Belloc wrote this in 1907, and okay, so that's the 20th century. But what came before in the 19th century was the satirical novel. Okay, so Jonathan Swift was, I would say, at the height of that. So with Gulliver's Travel and stuff like that. So. I'd studied this in uni and we learned about the corrective function of, of laughter. You laugh because something clicks off that it's it's something's wrong or something something's, something's off. incongruous, something's not right. And in a in a very good nineteenth century satirical novel, it usually forced you to look back on yourself, to look back on society and just see how strange, funny, irregular ridiculous uh, corrupted it was. So, this- so could Charles Dickens then be satire? I would argue to, uh, to some extent he definitely could be. Ooh, that adds a whole new dimension to Dickens. Anyway, continue. I, I wouldn't, like, I think, I haven't read enough Dickens to talk that I'm much about him, to be on, honest. But- no, but, and his his role was, correct me if I'm wrong, to it w- it show was- society what they were doing. Yes. Um, but I think there was probably an element of satire well, in it's there. Well, in, it's, in- it's interesting that you mention that because the whole thing that sets off Edward Fazer's blog post mm. is about this um, this theory that um, that that satire is dead. No, 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 no. That things are that things are funny only because they are speaking truth to power. And he says that that's ridiculous. He says that that's wrong. Because, so when you say when we, no, 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 because and you Jara probably and I, should explain what you mean when you say oh, sorry, truth speaking, to power. Speaking truth to power, I mean, is in like so. Um, 
I don't know how else to explain it. So, like for that. so like a, mi- a minority basically pointing out an uncomfortable truth about the the power relationship within a culture. Okay. Yes, and the person who is in the privilege, the the person who. Uh, Communism. No. (laughs) Just just gonna Um, we're gonna toot the communism horn here. We said it. (laughs) All right, all right, all right, all right. So basically a a person a member of a of the privileged group in that power relationship cannot make a joke about someone who is not in that privileged status because that's offensive. Because that's that's reinforcing that's putting them down and reinforcing their dominance over that the was, powerless that was person. what set off the uh, set off the the post that then set off this post was that um, what's his name Ian Tuttle, um, who Edward Fazer is replying to, um, is quite frustrated because he says to quote uh, feminists and others who routinely protest against allegedly sexist, racist, and or homophobic jokes told by prominent comedians such as Louis C.K. Um, so, what, what, why was I talking about that? Because we, um, I, I, oh yes, the speaking to truth to power yeah. thing. And he said, Edward Fazer says that the, the reality is a little bit more boring than that. Speaking the truth to power sounds really empowering, and like he said, the reality is is that that fits within the incongruity theory because speaking truth to power is something that people can find unexpected. So people might find it unexpected that a person uh, of let's say a lower class, I'm just using that example, uh, speaks something against someone of an upper class because, oh, you shouldn't really do that or anything like that. These days, you kind of almost have have a flip of that. And I think a really good example of that is, um, who's the fellow who plays Kramer? Um, um, George something or other. It's, it's in this article. He doesn't mention this specific example, but um, no, not he doesn't Kramer. say what his name is. Um, anyway, the, the fellow who plays Kramer from, from the show Seinfeld a couple of years back got into very, very big trouble because he started in, um, engaging with the audience. There was, um, there was an African-American couple, I think, who was sort of in that kind of style of comedy. Usually you start getting heck, like they start heckling and it's a, it's a play between the, between the two. Um, and Kramer, I'm just going to keep calling cause I can't think of his name, um, <laughs> starts, ranting on about how you know if this was back in you know a number of years ago and starts going on this kind of racist rant um and uses the n-word and all kinds of things like that now this was filmed um and he got into huge huge trouble for this and And put on the internet for all prosperity he didn't seem to think like he was quite defensive about it because he was saying look i'm not i was not being racist that was not my intention intentionality is a completely different thing but there you can kind of see how he's saying, look, the joke is I was being ridiculous. It's incongruent because these days that's an incredibly politically incorrect thing to say and that's why it's funny. Whereas society obviously hasn't gotten to a point where it would say, no, that's an acceptable form of comedy. But again, the morality of it isn't isn't taken. Yeah. But that I think is an, an interesting example of what... Yeah, um, and having, having said made. that though, there's a very fine line between incongruity and bad taste. Well, and that's, that's, see, this is, see, this is Edward Faser's point, yeah. is that all of this can be funny, whether it's morally right or not is, or whether is, a, it's is, is good, another, is yeah. a completely different story, is, he, is, it pains to, is it pains to point out. But the speaking, to truth, speaking truth to power thing is only funny because it's incongruent. Yes. It's contingent on something else. It's not the final say or the first principle 
I guess you could say, of why something is funny. Um, anyway, it's an interesting theory. I haven't thought about it too much, but I think it's this book here is a classic example and a classic um, and, and a very an excellent and an excellent piece of literary, an excellent example and the pictures, of the pictures. Uh, the, the pictures add to it. Great, the pictures, yeah. ma- the pictures also make it too. Like he very, very clearly sat down with the illustrator and they created this thing together. Like this yeah. wasn't. He didn't write this and then handed it off to an illustrator. An illustrator created something and then that's it. No, there was it's, it was clearly a collaborative process because the illustrations just add to the hum- like add so much to the humor. In it's fact, very... it doesn't really make. Go get it from Gutenberg. It's yeah, an ebook. The, the it's pictures, for free. The pictures are on the Gutenberg. Get the pictured one. One as well. It's so great. It's, um, read it's... it to your children, but don't read it to your four-year-olds <laughs> because they will probably take it too literally. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't. I've never. Unless you've got a very, very intelligent with... and with it four-year-old, um, yeah. you can read it. I'll leave that up to the judgment of know. the parents. Kids find it's different. Different kids are different, I guess. But. Um, yeah, I guess that's where we'll leave it. Um, and yeah, I definitely recommend it. Victoria. Victoria. No, 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 I'm not. <laughs> I, was okay. just, I was looking uh, at that. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah, I don't know what we're going to do for the next episode. This Another mystery always- book. <laughs> um, one day we'll, we'll, we'll know what we're going to read. Um, and yes, so Cautionary Tales for Children by Hilaire Belloc. And we must say also by BTB. Um, what was his name again? Basil Temple Blackwood. Yes. Um, fantastic book. Definitely read it. And uh, we will be awaiting your replies. Seinfeld, fla- Seinfeld fans, if you could tell us who Kramer is, that would George be fantastic. No. Google can tell us who he is. Don't bother writing in about that. Write in about yeah, something else, in please. About, write in with a suggestion. Is. <laughs> uh, Short suggestions, please. Do not... Come on, people. Google, you're really not helping... Michael Richards. Thank you. Michael Richards is his name. Not George Carlin. What on earth was I thinking? Michael Richards is the fellow. (laughs) Anyway, that's that's all. That's all. That's all in the the episode. And um, we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 That was an episode of Catholics Free from cradio.org.au. 